All right, well, welcome, and so let's just have an opening prayer with me, if you would. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. It's uh, the Tuesday after Easter, and, and we still bask in the glory of, of, of Easter, of, of your resurrection. We pray that as we come today in John's Gospel to his last stories of the resurrection, that you will remind us that we are resurrection people 365 days a year. We don't have to wait for Easter. It is resurrection that makes us Christians. It's resurrection that explains why any of us are even here. And just help us to grasp that, grasp the truth of this, um, as we finish up John's Gospel today. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I think we're good. Maybe I should check the recording one more time. Just to be sure. Okay, we're looking good. I always worry that things aren't working properly. And on some things you can, there's a way to get it right, but on other things there aren't. So, let's see. Okay, we are in John 21. Now, as I, as I said last week, the end of chapter 20 we, we read through that last week, and it would seem to be the end of the gospel, right? Um, look back at that final bridge paragraph. It's not really even a bridge. It's really the, the, the end of the gospel. Uh, chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe, that you may know, that you may have faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And we talked about the different pieces of that. And sure, of course, that seems like the end of the Gospel, right? Which makes you wonder, well, what do I do with chapter 21? And um, nearly all interpreters agree that it is an epilogue. It was added. Um, but I think most agree that it was added by John himself. After he had finished, he came back and added this piece. There is no manuscript of John's Gospel which lacks chapter 20. So you know that from the earliest time, times, chap chapter 21, that, that since the earliest times, chapter 21 is there. And I think that... Um, uh, John, in chapter 21, he wanted to give us more resurrection stories, and he wanted to come back to the story of Peter. Because Peter, in John's Gospel, does not play the same leadership role that he does in the Synoptics Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, he, he's, I won't call him secondary, but, but he's, not, he's not the same sort of key figure. A lot of things revolve around in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, the focus very much stays all the time on Jesus. And um, this, this claim that John is bring, begins with and is bringing you toward that Jesus is not only the Messiah, that he is indeed God. The Word who was in the beginning with God and indeed was God. And um, so, but John does give us the story of Peter's threefold denial. Remember that? Threefold denial. 
um, that he betrayed Jesus three times. He betrayed Jesus by sitting outside Caiaphas's house in the courtyard and three times denied that he even knew Jesus. And um, I've talked a lot over the years about the amount of guilt that uh, Peter had to feel about that. Can you imagine? He had followed Jesus all this time. He declared him to be the Messiah. He had poured his heart and soul into Jesus and his ministry and he had seen the things that Jesus was able to do and he had just spent time with the man. He had just spent time with Jesus. And when the crunch came, Peter failed him. Even, I mean, Peter had sworn he would never do that. So I, I think one of the things that John does is, is I think he feels late in his life that he wants to do his part to help you get the fuller picture of Peter, which we will come to in this chapter. So, um, any questions before we sort of plunge in? I've got to give myself a little bit more cord here. So, let me look around the room. Any questions? This is... Uh, no? Okay, well, just hum a tune to yourself for a second here. <laughs> i got to free myself from something here. Getting all caught up in this cord. Okay, very good. So let's let's just 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 review for a second where we are because John actually gives us a lot of resurrection accounts, right? Matthew does in his own very Jewish way. Luke does in probably the most straightforward way. Mark, sadly, we probably don't have the tr true and original ending of Mark's Gospel. We have about eight verses at the end of Mark. They're, they're afraid, they're terrified, and then it ends. And in your Bibles, at the end of Mark, there are a couple of endings suggested to you. Those aren't, those aren't real. They aren't part of the early, they aren't found in the earliest manuscripts of Mark. So what happened? The ending of Mark was simply lost. I mean, it is 2,000 years ago. And now John gives us really a lot in the way of these resurrection stories. He, he's not explaining the resurrection. He's not being overtly theological. He isn't talking about the deep implications of it for humanity and for the world. That is something Paul will do. He's just telling you these things that happened um, uh, after Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb and Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus in the garden, right? When she wants to cling to him and Jesus says, no, you can't hold on to me. Things are not going back the way they were. They're moving forward. And then Jesus' appearance to the disciples and then finally a week later his appearance to the disciples when Thomas is there and Thomas is able to well, remember we saw Jesus invites Thomas to, to come and touch his wounds. Um, John doesn't say that Thomas actually did touch his wounds. Um, but if I know people, as I think I know people, Thomas did. Right? And certainly in this famous painting of Caravaggio, Thomas, Thomas does, and it's very powerful. 
Um, it drives home the fact that Jesus' body is quite material, touchable, right? Which, which is totally in line with what will happen in a little bit in John's Gospel in chapter 21 and with what happens particularly in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus eats the broiled fish and Jesus himself says, I'm not a ghost, I'm flesh and bones, right? And uh, Thomas utters out his famous words, my Lord and my God. And I call him that because as I said last week, it is the first time that somebody calls Jesus my Lord. The word Lord has been used in respect to Jesus before that, but this is the first time somebody has said my Lord and it is the first time that somebody has referred to Jesus as God. That is the outcome of Thomas's encounter with the risen Christ. And then at the end of chapter 20, you have the little wrap-up section, and then we move to the epilogue in chapter 21. So people sometimes have trouble thinking about how the geography might work and trying to fit all of these disparate resurrection stories on some kind of timeline. And I'm here to tell you, just don't get wrapped up in that because none of the gospel writers give you enough information to do that. Some of the experience resurrection stories happen in Jerusalem. Cool, fine, of course, that's where he was buried, it's where he was resurrected. Some of them happen in Galilee, such as we're coming to on the seashore. When he ascends to the Father at the end of Matthew's Gospel, that happens on a mountain in um, Galilee. So, but you can't really thread them all together and figure out exactly when they all happen and in what order, even though our modern-day Western brains want to figure it out. Um, that's just not the way to do this. The way to do this is to take in these resurrection accounts, um, hear, what, hear what the Gospel writers are telling you um, about who Jesus is, um, the nature of resurrection, and what Jesus has to say to each of the disciples or to the group. Because when he's speaking, so often he's speaking, yes, to the people he's there, but the Gospel writers know that for the readers of these Gospels, he's speaking to us, right? I mean, we're Jesus' disciples. We have emissions. When Jesus said earlier in John's Gospel, I'm sending you forth, right? He's not just talking to the twelve around the table at the dinner. He's speaking above them to all the disciples to come. John wants us to grasp that. The Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel is about going, go out and make disciples of all nations. That's not just for the disciples who are with Jesus on the mountain. That is for us all. That gives the shape to our lives. Nobody should ever... There was a famous book a while back by Rick Warren called The Purpose Driven Life. And I, I hear a lot of people talk about, well, my life doesn't have purpose. Every single Christian's life has purpose. You have been given a vocation by God. How that plays out in your life, you can figure out with God and the help of the Holy Spirit. But we are all called to make disciples. We're all called to be witnesses to Jesus. You know, let that be an important part of how you see your life. And for me, a class like this is what? This is an equipping opportunity. 
just as if you were in a corporate America and we were all, we were all tax accountants. Doesn't that sound boring? Anybody in here a tax accountant by profession? Your husband was. Yes, well, okay, tax accounting. Okay. Well, it still seems boring, but anyway, <laughs> he might have agreed. <laughs> but, um, but we would all be equipping ourselves to go forth and be great tax accountants, right? So we come here to study the Bible. Not, we're not just students of history or geography or something. We come here as disciples to, to equip ourselves to be ever truer disciples and to come to know Jesus better, not just for our own ends, right? But so that we can be, we can be the ones sent forth. We can be the people God has called us to be. So, John evidently felt that this gospel of his, that in a very strong sense ends at the end of chapter 20, needed an epilogue. He had more to say, more to write. And so he appends it to his gospel. I don't think it's more complicated than that. So look at 21.1. Um, I put up a map of Galilee because that's where this is happening. This is a res resurrection appearance of when the disciples, some of the disciples, I'm not going to, not, not, I won't even say all of the twelve, some of the twelve, maybe some others, we don't know, have made their way back to Galilee. Why? Because that's their home and because Jesus said he would appear to them there. Okay, and so they've gone back to Galilee. And what do they do up there? Well, how have they made their living in, over the course of their adult lives? Okay, okay. Nobody can see the map. There's the map. Sorry. There's the map. It's a map I use many times. Okay, nobody, um, what do they do? They're fishermen. Sea of Galilee is a big local industry. They fish and they catch fish and, and they're going back up there and doing doing what they do. You know, Paul supported himself in the whole course of his ministry and mission trips by making tents and other sorts of leather goods and canvas goods and sewing them together. It was a skill that he had. And so these 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 folks fish. So sure. Okay. So, you know, it's like this is I'll hold that comment. Let's just read it. So afterward, afterward, after, after something, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, <laughs> right, two knuckles deep Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twins, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, that's chapter 1, Nathaniel, the one who thought nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. The sons of Zebedee, which we know from the other Gospels are James and John, though they're not named that in John's Gospel. And two others. So we have a grand total of seven, right? No significance, I don't think, to any of that. John is one of them, and he's just telling you who was along when this happens. So Peter told them, I'm going to go out to fish. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Nothing, nothing unusual. 
fishing typically happened at nighttime. You know, that, that's when they would typically feel like they, like they could catch more fish within their nets. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. So if you're in the boat and you look to the shore, it would just look like, of course, that there was a guy hanging out on the seashore. That's all. And this guy calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And they shout back, no. <laughs> it was a bad night. So he said to them, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Which is odd. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So what's happening? First of all, there's nothing except for the who Jesus is. There's nothing unusual about the scene as it's said. There's, they're out fishing. There's a guy on the seashore. They come in. It's been a poor night um, in terms of the catch they have. But this man on the seashore tells them to throw the net out the right side. They do so. Now the nets are packed to overflowing. And you're saying to yourself, well, gosh, that's a lot like those stories of when Jesus first called the disciples. And it is. That story is not in John's Gospel of when, when Jesus says, I will make you fishers of people. But here you have a story of a miraculous catch. Okay, another miraculous catch. This one at the end of, of the story. At some time, obviously not far from the time of Jesus' return to the Father. Because there's only about six weeks between Jesus' death and resurrection and his return to the Father, between Passover and Pentecost. Okay? Even though we can't lay the stuff out on a timeline neatly, we do have a sense that it was about that long. Okay? So in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably John, the writer of the gospel, and one of the sons of Zebedee says to Peter, it is the Lord. Whether that is because of the catch or because John is considerably younger than the others and sees a lot better and recognizes Jesus, I don't know. I think it's some of both. Okay? Now that I don't see as well as I once did, I, I appreciate the fact that the young guy the young'un in the group might well be able to, to recognize Jesus from a distance that old Peter can't. So he says it is the Lord. It is Jesus is what he means. Well, as soon as Simon heard him he say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. So this may, I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but fishermen in this time, when they were out fishing and working in the lake, the Sea of Galilee, they would sometimes or often fish naked because they would be in and out of the water all the time. The way they fished, was, they didn't fish with lines. They had round nets. They were round nets, big round netting, 
and there were stones around the outside. And they would take the they would take the, the, the net and they would throw it out and it would sink and trap fish and then they would haul it back in, hoping they had made a good catch. And you know, the Sea of Galilee is like six hundred feet below sea level, so it's a pretty can be a pretty warm place. So in any event, um, I don't know if Peter had nothing on, but he had taken off his outer garment at least. So he wrapped the outer garment around him and jumped into the water. It says he was naked. Does it say your, your translation says naked? Or he was naked. Huh, well, there we go. Those translators, you know, it all depends on what the, how you tra translate the Greek underneath. But that works for me. He wrapped his garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he was naked. And he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. See, they're smart. They're going to bring those fish in at least, right? They're fishermen, tradesmen. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. So it's about a length of a football field or so that they're out there off the, off the shore um, doing their fishing. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. So, this fellow, Jesus, whomever, the, I don't know what, how they're, what they're all like, expecting. Whatever they are expecting to find on the shore, they're just finding somebody, they're finding somebody who's making what? Breakfast. Breakfast of, of, of broiled fish. This is, um, I'll step out of the way. This is James Tussauds, whose paintings I use a lot. He was this 19th century uh, Frenchman who moved to England, um, what, became an, a devout Christian at about, about the age of 50 and used his m many skills in art and painting to uh, paint like 750 different images from the Bible. And this is his painting of Jesus on the seashore and the boat out there. So, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish in it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. Isn't that fascinating? that the number, the exact number of fish that they caught is captured by John, right? As a fisherman, they would want to know how many fish they had caught because they were going to sell them and they would want to get the right price for them. But he tells us, and I'm not aware, I've read various attempts to explain some, find some meaning in the 153. I don't think there is any meaning in the 153. It's just, it's just a moment of reality right there. 153 fish, yep, that's what we caught. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Another little surprise. Because the nets are not like the nets they have these days, right? The nets are the best that they can make them. And it's a huge collection of large fish. You're given the numbers so you just appreciate how big a collection it was and the net wasn't even torn. All of which is adding to, of course, this is a miraculous catch of fish.
So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Remember back at the beginning of the gospel when, when Jesus would, would see people, and what would he say? And he would say, come and see, right? What are you up to? Come and see, come and see, come and see, this, this word of invitation. So now it's another word of, of invitation, not come and see, come and have breakfast. Oh, how many people here love breakfast? How many people here have breakfast for dinner sometimes? Yay! We love that, of course. A lot of people like breakfast for dinner. I know something, something wonderful about it. So, so he says, come and have breakfast. It is, it is, it, it is a meal they will share. You could, do, you could do a sermon series on meals across Scripture. Meals matter. Eating matters. Um, there are segments of our culture which I don't think appreciate. Some people go overboard, but there are other segments that don't appreciate that it's more than getting the correct nutrition in you. It is about the enjoyment of God's creation. It's about sharing time with others. Um, and here, Jesus is going to sit down with this group of followers, this group of disciples, including some who were close to him, Peter, for one, the sons of Zebedee for another, because in the synoptics, Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, are part of the innermost circle of disciples. They're the ones who go up the mount for the transfiguration with Jesus. So he says, come and have breakfast. Let's share this morning meal together. Well, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Why? Because they knew it was the Lord. I like that moment. You know, sitting here 2,000 years later, it's easy to make the whole resurrection thing very cut and dried. Because we can say the words, we go to Easter, we sing the songs, and we lose a sense of the utter and astounding amazement that Jesus was resurrected. And so I don't think we should be, be surprised that little bits of that, they, don't, they, they didn't dare ask if this was the Lord, for they knew it was him. But there's still this little, this little piece, right? I mean, really, dead people do stay dead. They do stay dead, except for Jesus. And except one day for us all, because... Good Friday is all about God's defeat of death. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew. They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and did the same thing with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Um, because in John's Gospel, you have the, the, the first appearance, then you have the appearance with Thomas, and now you have this is the third in John's Gospel. I wish that John explicitly wrote down that Jesus participated in this breakfast, in the eating of it. Um, 
because I think that he did. I mean, who could make breakfast and not eat any of it? <laughs> really. <laughs> and, and we know from Luke's gospel that, that, that Jesus did eat fish and the rest of it. But uh, John's, in Luke's gospel, the fish eating by Jesus is a matter of proving that he wasn't a ghost, right? I mean, if we looked at Luke, Luke 24 last week, that um, he's not a ghost. When he came in the room, they thought he was a ghost, of course, but he's not a ghost. He, Jesus says, I am flesh and bones, and give me some of that fish to eat. So it was a, that was proving, showing them, demonstrating to them that Jesus had a real, had a real body. Transformed, tra um, trans what? Trans something but still material in the sense that could be touched and hugged and eat. Uh, people ask me, did Jesus need to eat for to sustain his resurrected body? No. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. If he, if he ate but didn't need to to sustain himself, he did it because eating this food is a way to enjoy God's good creation and a way to bond with other people. So I don't know. All I, I do really hope, I do enjoy eating, Gary. Right? I'll just confess it. I, I enjoy eating good food. So I'm, I'm really hoping that, you know, then in the kingdom of God made fully manifest that I can eat everything I want without putting on any weight. Right? <laughs> Yep, just 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 eat, just just go to that go to that Weston Stonebriar uh, buffet every day. Pick what I want, eat it, not worry about it. Um, that would be that would be wondrous. I don't know if I had to bet on it. Like if I were a betting man, I would bet that that's how it's going to be. I don't know. You know, I, what people ask me most of the questions we have about our our own resurrection. The Bible doesn't, folk, doesn't answer any of them. They don't answer them. So I just tell people to pack it with as much goodness as you can. Just, just fill it up with as much good and wonder as you possibly can. And so that's kind of one of the pieces for me right there. Tommy, yes. The, well, see, that's an attempt. The, quite, the, the attempt is somebody said, this is just a study note, some whoever wrote them said, well, the number may correspond to ancient beliefs about the number of species of the fish, like it's all the fish in the world that they caught. I have read various opinions about the 153, and I still like it's just the number. Right? Yeah. So there's a whole lot of, maybe this, maybe that, maybe this. This is one, I don't know. So sometimes we feel like we have to explain everything. Scholars are the worst at that. Because they're so smart, they have to explain and understand everything. But they're not, a lot of them are not as smart as they think they are. Yes? Yes, yes, it's hard. Right, it is hard. Somebody, you know, I have a book on my shelf written by Alistair McGrath. Alistair McGrath is a preacher, teacher, writer, 
from England. He has a PhD, what we would call a PhD in biochemistry, I think, and a PhD in theology. And he has a, he wrote a book called Intellectuals Need God Too. Because smart people think they don't. They're perfectly fine, thank you very much, sir. But they're not. Their, their heart can be as dark as anybody else's, often darker. Okay, so the miraculous catch of fish. That's the story. It's just a wonderful story. Jesus sits down and has breakfast with these, these, these fellows. It's a meal. Again, like if you, if you take the gospel accounts in all four gospels and you just set them all down sort of side by side, you're going to find nothing very systematic no big soaring theology about it all like we're going to encounter some of when we get to 1 Corinthians 15 in the Apostle Paul. Um, they're just telling you what happened. They're just telling you what happened. And here is Jesus showing up again and they have breakfast together. Do the gospel, should you assume that the four gospels contain all of the resurrection appearances. Nope. Don't assume that. No reason to assume that. Um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, says, because he's writing to people who basically have given up, if they ever had it, their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And, and he says to them, look, he appeared to be to more than 500 brothers and sisters. Most of them are still alive. Go ask them. They'll tell you. Right? So, so don't think that the Gospels exhaust the accounts of Jesus' resurrection. These are just the ones that we are, that we've been, that we've been given. Okay? And um, as John says, he's given us his, the ones that he wants to put down on paper, um, despite all the things that he could write about Jesus that would fill a library, he's about to say toward the end of the chapter 21, he's giving these so that we might believe. Right? Look again at verse 21. These are written that you may have faith, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, by faithing, you may have life in his name. For there is no other eternal life other than life in Jesus' name. And, right? Because if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if he is who John claimed him to be, God, then you can't say, nobody can honestly say, well, you know, I'm all, I'm all interested in God, but I have no interest in Jesus. Right? That's illogical. That doesn't make any sense. All, if it's true, if it's true that Jesus is the Word who was with God and was God, and John writes his gospel to help convince you or help you feel more convinced of what you already believe, that Jesus is, indeed, He is God. Without wrestling with all of the various Trinitarian mysteries that Lauren wrestled with, with for months in her classes at seminary, right, that all have big names and big words and all that kind of stuff. This is, this, 
This is not that. That will come. That's important. But this is not that. So, before we go on, any thoughts or questions? Anything you'd like to talk about? Uh, yes. It sounds like the Last Supper. It sounds like the feeding of the 5,000. And so consequently, guess what? Interpreters spend a lot of time discussing and arguing with, does there some bigger meaning here? Or is this simply the way that Jews would have done this? I'm in the camp that says there is significance in this. That he says he took the bread, he broke it, he gave it to them, that that little formulation in the Gospels at various times is something we should pick up on. And it ties together something sacramental with regard to Jesus. That, you know, you'll find others who would say no, no, no. But, but, that, but that's what I think. And um, I, just, I, just, I just don't know why John would write the words that way if he didn't want us to pick up on them. So thanks for bringing that up. I skipped over that. Don. This, this is, goes back to a comment you made earlier about uh, uh, it was Peter where you said Peter in his later life was embarrassed that he three times uh, did not, well, three times at that one session to, to the Romans said he did not know Christ. And I've always wondered in my own case if somebody came up to me and put a gun at my would I do the same thing? Sure. And is that, and yet Peter came back and, and Jesus accepted Peter even after that point. And I wonder if it just brought up that as humans we can do what Peter did, but Jesus still comes back. Because I don't know what I would do. I mean, Don is. Um, brought up the story of Peter when Peter denied Jesus three times. And he does it out of fear in the courtyard outside Caiaphas. Because, why is he so fearful? Because he knew the history was that followers of would-be messiahs were rounded up and executed like their, their, their master was. So he knew that history and so he does deny Jesus three times to various people in the courtyard. And Don's saying, well, you know, if I had a gun to my head, I might have done the same thing. And I think he speaks for many of us. This is the subject that the early church had to deal with. In those first centuries, when the church was being, when Christians were being persecuted here and there, you know, near and yon, um, there were Christians who who did deny their faith in Jesus 
at the point of a gun or a Roman spear or being tossed into the arena. And when the persecution had passed, the churches had to, the communities had to decide what to do with those people. Would they take them back? Or would they say, no, you denied Jesus. You, you can't come back because I mean, we're more righteous than you. You, 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 can't, you can't come back. By and large, they took them back. Why? Because Jesus' example is an example of mercy and forgiveness. And of course we are weak. And of course we fear death. Um, and of course we can... Uh, of course we can be scared. It's, you know, I'm thinking of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay, the German theologian who, who ended up, despite his love of it for his country, which was great, he was very much a patriot, came to believe that he needed to participate in the plot to assassinate Hitler. And when his role was discovered, um, Bonhoeffer was jailed and indeed was hung in um, early 1945. One of the things that Bonhoeffer said was, he said, I know that most people are not like me. I can do this. I, I, by God's grace, I can do this. What he didn't want people to think was that grace was cheap. And I don't think Peter ever did think that grace was cheap. I think one of the astounding things is that in the Gospel of Mark you find the story of Peter's denial of Jesus three times because the Gospel of Mark is probably Peter's eyewitness testimony captured by John Mark and put down on papyrus. Okay, put down on, on paper. And that Peter himself would tell the story himself of his own denial of Jesus, I think is, um, is very powerful. But sure, of course, of course, of course. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. God's justice is always tempered with, with mercy. Um, God knows we are strong sometimes and we are weak other times. And may we all be strong enough always to, to proudly and boldly proclaim, you know, our faith in Christ regardless of the circumstances. But we may not be. And, but Jesus is there, always there waiting for us. That's the way I see it. It's the way the early church saw it. Okay? Which might explain, okay, so let me follow this thread. So John is going to tell the story of the re Yes? Oh, did it? Okay, well, there could be only... Hang on. Hang on, online people. There's only one possible... reason for this the batteries went out and there's no battery indicator on this backpack so hum a tune <laughs> talk amongst yourselves okay 
Those are the bad ones. Okay, how about now? Oh. I guess if I were smart, I'd just put fresh batteries in every Tuesday because that's too exciting. Okay. Okay. So, so let's, I hope you heard most of what I said because I can never repeat it. Okay. So, but let's tie this together. So the last piece that John is going to give us is Jesus' reinstatement of Peter. Right? So why does John give us Jesus' reinstatement of Peter? Why didn't he just, ah, I'm done with the gospel, let's go on, I got things to do. Perhaps it is because he is writing in the early 90s AD. He knows that there have been Christians around the empire who have been persecuted. Peter, according to the Bishop of Rome, uh, three decades later, was crucified by Nero toward the end of Nero's reign. And so, so John wants us to, to give us this reinstatement, as it is, as it were, of Peter so that we can have confidence that indeed, that indeed, even if we are weak, as Peter was weak, Jesus waits for us and forgives us if we return to him in faith and love. How about that? Yeah, see? Absolutely. There's some, there's some reason that everybody does everything. There's some reason that John gives us this story of Jesus reinstating Peter. So, let's read it, and then we'll see what other questions there are when I, when I finish it, okay? Well, verse 15. When they had finished eating, <laughs> including Jesus, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, that draws a lot of ink from interpreters. More than these? What does he mean? Do you love me more than these? More than these disciples? More than these parts of your life you're attached to? More than what? You know, um, it's a, in the Greek, it is a comparative phrase. Do you love me more than these? And I'm inclined to think that Jesus means with Peter more than the others. But Jesus doesn't really give, say anything more than that. So he says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Simon says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my lambs. So, that is a piece of shepherding imagery, right? Mm -hmm. Shepherding imagery. Shepherding is a very powerful, very powerful image across the expanse of Scripture. The kings were to be good shepherds of Israel. When they failed, God said, I will be the shepherd. I will be the good shepherd of, of Israel. Jesus takes that imagery, shapes it around himself when he says, I am the good shepherd. And now he uses that imagery to convey to Peter that he is now going to be the shepherd. Because, why is he going to be the shepherd? 
Because Jesus is going. He's going. He's told him he's going. Right? He's going. He's not staying. And so there is work to be done. Pastors are shepherds. You know, we've, we live in a time when too many churches see themselves as organizations and very businesslike, and they'll talk business terms and they'll speak of numbers in business terms and it's all misguided. It's all misguided. We, we, the pastors are shepherds and we are a family and we need to think in those terms no matter how big the family gets. Even families who are big, even families who have to manage lots of lots of you know dollars and cents they're still families they're not businesses and um so jesus says to peter in this very shepherding way feed my sheep my lambs and again jesus says to simon son of john do you love me and simon says yes lord you know that i love you you know, for me, there's a little dot, dot, dot after the first couple of these because he did deny Jesus three times. It's not unfair for Jesus to ask this question of Simon. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Same idea. The third time he said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? Well, uh, well sure. One, he, he would be distressed that Jesus needed convincing <laughs> that Peter loved him. But of course, Peter's no fool. He's sitting there a few weeks after he denied Jesus three times. He gets what's going on. This is the reversal of, of, of the betrayal. Three times Jesus denies him. Three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? Of course. Of course it is that way. And of course Peter would get that. He understands what's happening and it hurts him. So Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. Um, one of the ways that N.T. Wright talks about the cross and Jesus is going to the cross is that is in response to people who will say well you know come on he's God he knows everything that's gonna happen what's the big deal what's the big deal in Gethsemane and all this stuff and 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 N.T. Wright says Jesus knew that he was loved by the Father but for any of us there is risk in being loved. There's risk in being loved in the sense that I was talking with someone about this recently. There's nothing wrong 
with reassuring the person you love that you love them. Because there can be real joy in that reassurance. Because I think we, we need that assurance, we enjoy that reassurance, it's a good thing. It's not saying, well, I don't trust you and all this. No, it's reassuring because there is risk in being loved. And even for Jesus, there was risk in knowing that he was loved by the Father. You know, I, I, kind, I, I, I kind of like that. And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Well, yes, but what God wants from us, first and foremost, is that we would love God and that we would love others. And um, Jesus can look inside Peter's heart, but Peter is still, even in that, he is a free agent. He has, he's not a, Peter's not a robot. You're not a robot. I'm not a robot. Who wants to be loved by robots? Maybe only other robots. <laughs> right? So, we don't want to be loved by robots. We want to be loved by someone who loves us out of their will, out of their freedom. Right? Just because of us. That, that's what we want. That's what everybody wants in the movies, of course. So, so... Um, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus is presenting the question to him again. To bring Peter to the point of saying, yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So Jesus says to him next, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, the double amen. Verily, verily, truly, truly. This is the absolute truth that I'm telling you. When you were younger, you dressed yourself. And what, when went where you wanted to go? But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will dress you. And lead you where, to where you do not to want to go. Virtually all interpreters see this as a reference to crucifixion which, um, as I talked about just a minute ago, the, 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 the story around Peter is that Peter was crucified toward the end of Nero's reign, and that's told to us by a bishop of Rome named Clement, who lived in the late first century, which means, and Nero's, the end of Nero's reign was, I don't know, let's call it 65 or 66 AD. So only a few decades later, the bishop of Rome is saying, here's what happened to Peter. He was alive, certainly, when Peter was, was crucified. And that was reiterated by other uh, Christians, Tertullian and others, who wrote about the first century. And later, you encounter some who tell the story of Peter being crucified upside down. Now, Clement doesn't say Peter was crucified upside down. But the tradition grows that when Peter was crucified, he didn't want to be crucified as Jesus was because he was unworthy of being crucified as Jesus was. So he has to be crucified, 
you know, upside down. I, I, I don't know. It's a, it's, it, it, it's a um, sweet tradition, but I don't know that the Romans would have put up with all that kind of stuff. So, so virtually everybody who studies John's Gospel believes that when you come to this point, did you stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and will lead you where you do not want to go. John is speaking of the crucifixion that would lie ahead of Peter, for Peter after the end of the story of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Remember this glory word. I, I, find, I think I went most of my life, much, much of my life, without understanding the word glory, even though it's all over the place. Glory is a, is a social word. It's a social word. It has meaning only in respect to others. So, um, a soldier on the battlefield glorifies his platoon when he does heroic things and people say, boy, those guys were amazing, right? That's the idea. So Jesus glorifies God on the cross because he was faithful all the way to death, even death on the cross. And that brought glory to God because everyone was able to see the depth of God's love, the fact that God's son would, would do this. And when, when Simon is, when Peter is, crucified it brings the glory to God what <sighs> well okay I hope I don't know the online people I don't think can hear me but there's yeah so there we go. I can't do anything about it. I have no more batteries. Must be something other than battery. Okay, so I will bring fresh, fresh, fresh batteries next time. Still in the packaging. Yeah. So, I will speak up in order to, to finish this up for those of us here. And if you're online and you miss the end, I will be posting later today the podcast because the podcast is still working because it's not going through the sound system here. So, verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. There's that word. Go back to the beginnings of the Gospels. Follow me, Jesus says. Here again he says, follow me. It's a word for you and for me. It's not just for them. This is what Jesus asks of us that we would follow him, that we would live in his way, that we would be his disciples, that we would strive to be Christ-like. Follow me, Jesus says. And of course, in the context of the immediate sentences, Peter will be following Jesus to a cross. To a cross. So Peter at that moment turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And then he tells us something. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? That if we went back to the last to the supper, we would see that the son, one who Jesus loved leaned to Jesus and said just, just that. 
And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? <laughs> this is, Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Well, that's interesting. So, there seems to be, have been some idea that John or some of the disciples or somebody would never die or whatever. Probably related to the fact that Jesus was resurrected and the Jewish expectation was that everybody would be resurrected. Right? And so Peter is somehow in that water and Jesus says to him, I think a bit pointedly, what is that to you? You must follow me. What I hear in that for me in my own life is don't get caught up in all the wrong sorts of things, in all the wrong sorts of debates and questions and all this stuff that Christians find themselves in about, you know, current what in our time has been, you know, is Jesus about to come? Just don't do that. Put that question away. You don't know. You can't figure it out. What are we supposed to do with our days? Follow Jesus. You see? That's, it's easy to speculate about Jesus' return. It's really hard to follow Jesus. That's the truth of it. So Jesus says, Ah, what is it to you? You must follow me. Now because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? That whole paragraph is so... I don't know. Can I use the word? Bizarre. <laughs> It's kind of, to me, it's just kind of bizarre. And to me, it speaks to the genuineness of this writing. Right? This is not some cleaned up little account of this and that. Somebody's not sitting down with a pen in a little cabin somewhere. John is, John's putting this down on paper. He's talking. He's writing. There's this thing that happens. It seems unclear to us seems opaque to us and for me that's just kind of real life that's just kind of real life lots of times we say things that later on people don't understand sometimes they don't understand us in the moment verse 24 this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down we know that his testimony is true. John is just stating clearly that the testimony to Jesus, which has encompassed 21 chapters, um, this entire Greek writing, is true. It happened. Jesus was resurrected. The corollary is that if Jesus was not resurrected, then we are all wasting our time. Not only that, if Jesus was not resurrected, none of us would be talking about him. None of us would know about him. He'd be as gone in history as Judas the Galilean. How many people are familiar with the story of Judas the Galilean? 
He's even in the New Testament, and we don't know anything about him. We would never heard of Judas the Galilean. We would never heard of Jesus. He would have died on a Roman cross, a forgotten, 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 would-be rebel against Rome. Forgotten. Can I say it again? Forgotten. The only reason that Christianity exists is because the disciples and all the other early followers believed they knew that Jesus had been resurrected and they were willing to die for it. They were willing to die for it, which is odd if you think it's a lie. That's why, okay. Over the years, especially in the last century and a half, many ideas have been put forward about ways to explain this but not have but not have Jesus being actually resurrected you know he swooned he passed out they don't actually have doctors like we have and they took him away and then he kind of got up and escaped to India or somewhere you know the trouble with that is that you have to imagine the Roman death squad didn't know how to do their job all of these possible theories have all been knocked out. No, no, no New Testament scholar believes any of that stuff anymore. The, the way that skeptics deal with this is they believe there's some sort of mass hallucination on the part of the disciples because they simply can't deny that the disciples and the early followers of Jesus all believed it was absolutely true that this man Jesus had died, had been executed by the Romans, and was then resurrected, brought to newly embodied life. And um, when we get to the right part in 1 Corinthians, we'll have a chance to see the earliest testimony about the resurrection, and that is in Paul's letters. It's not here, because this is all long after Paul died. The earliest testimony about it is, is is from Paul and from people that um, pieces that he has learned. So this is verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And then the next verse is this great truth. Jesus did many other things as well. The Gospels are all short, right? They're all short. There's four of them, four complimentary portraits of Jesus, but they're all short. They're all brief. His ministry lasts, what, two, two and a half, three years, depending on how you count this and that. Well, of course, there's a lot of other things that he did. And then John writes, if every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now that's a big point from John, you see, the whole world, because who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that John has been writing about? Go back and look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. 
in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And look down at verse 14. The Word, that Word, through whom all things were made, that Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is the story of John's Gospel. As I said at the beginning, John right up front tells you the big truth. Right? The capital B, capital T, big truth. And he brings you to a handful of resurrection accounts. And in between is, is episode after episode where you're brought to see that indeed the prologue is right. You remember there's this one I loved in chapter 10. Where, where, where Jesus is confronted by a crowd and he asks them, well, what am I doing that makes you so mad? Why are you standing there with rocks in your hands ready to stone me? I haven't done anything to deserve that. And the man says from the crowd, it's not what you've done. It's that you make yourself out to be God. Because he was. He was. Yep. So, that, my friends, is John's Gospel. The end. The end. And when we, are, we are, when we are back here, not next week. Yeah. But in two weeks, then we will... We will begin Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. That'll be May 3rd. So, let's pray. It's 1.15. I'll pray us home today. Gracious Lord, John's Gospel is such a gift to us. It's been a gift to the church for 2,000 years. Help us to appreciate that. Help us to come back to John's Gospel time and time again. There's so much depth, so much richness that even in this long journey through John's Gospel that has lasted 30 weeks or more, um, we, we still um, can only stay close to the surface at least. And we just pray that you would help us to grasp that John wrote this so that we might have confidence and might trust in the truth that your son Jesus is indeed the Word who was in the beginning and was with God and was God so that we will follow him and be good witnesses to Jesus, bold in our witnessing. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.